The search continues for the gunman who killed 18 people at a Lewiston, Maine bowling alley and nearby restaurant last night. This attack strikes at the very heart of who we are and the values we hold dear for this precious place we call home. It's Thursday, October 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Israel-Hamas war has been the deadliest stretch for journalists in the region in more than 30 years. And higher food prices and the end of pandemic-era support programs fuel an increase in hunger in the U.S. In particular, we worry about that for children because, you know, their trajectory now influences what happens to them later. A report finds 17 million American households struggle to pay for food. It's 401, the news is first. One striking a residential building in the central city of Petatikva. An Israeli firefighter surveying the scene. No immediate word of casualties across the border in Gaza. Emergency personnel at the site of another Israeli airstrike, this one in Khan Yunis, reportedly killed several Palestinians. Since Hamas militants' October 7th attacks on Israel, more than 1,400 Israelis have died. In Gaza, the death toll, numbering in the thousands, continues to climb as a result of Israeli strikes and a humanitarian crisis, including fuel shortages. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarni has been getting updates via voice memo from a 20-year-old engineering student in Gaza. In Gaza City, Shima Ahed is sheltering with her family, and the airstrikes have not let up. This has been continuous, so I don't know how much I'm going to be able to stay in contact. But yeah, this is the situation now. Power for her cell phone and mobile service is scarce. The situation is very dire and it's very bad. According to the health ministry in Gaza, more than 7,000 people have died there since October 7th, when Hamas militants launched a cross-border attack, killing more than 1,400 Israelis. Alyssa Nadwarni, NPR News. A massive search is underway for the Army Reservist wanted in connection with last night's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Authorities accused Robert Card of killing at least 18 people and injuring 13 others. Colonel William Ross of Maine State Police said earlier today that several deceased victims had yet to be identified and next of kin notified. Uh, approximately eight people at this point have been identified. Ten people, ten of these victims still need to be identified at this time. NPR's Windsor Johnson has White House reaction. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre echoed President Biden's sentiments calling the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, senseless and tragic. This is not normal. We cannot accept this. There have been literally hundreds of mass shootings in the last year alone, leaving empty seats at dinner tables across the country and leaving those who survive these heinous acts both physically and mentally scarred. The White House is once again turning up the pressure on congressional Republicans to work with Democrats to pass tougher gun control measures. They're seeking a ban on assault-style weapons and universal background checks. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. And on our victims, flags of federal buildings in the U.S. are lowered. It's NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Massachusetts congressional delegation is weighing in on the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Congressman Seth Moulton says too many families are bonded by the horrors of losing someone to a senseless act of violence. He says we need answers on how the system, quote, failed so tragically. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says it's long overdue we treat gun violence like the public health crisis it is. The head of the Massachusetts-based advocacy group Stop Handgun Violence says yesterday's mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, do not surprise him. John Rosenthal says Maine has weapon and ammunition regulations when it comes to hunting animals, but its overall gun laws are lacking. When you want to hunt humans, like this guy did yesterday and may continue to do today and tomorrow unless they catch him, no license and no limit on the number of rounds. And that is going on in roughly 32 states across the country. Rosenthal says if Maine had gun laws like Massachusetts does, it could have prevented the shooter's access to the weapon used yesterday. The Duxbury woman accused of killing her three children in January was arraigned at Tewksbury Hospital today. Lindsay Clancy was indicted on murder charges last month. She'll remain at the hospital held without bail while she awaits trial. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Clancy appeared in a wheelchair and pleaded not guilty to killing the children in the family's Duxbury home. Defense attorney Kevin Reddington said Clancy's now paralyzed from the waist down after jumping from a window the night of the murders. Reddington said at that time Clancy was struggling with postpartum depression and was over-medicated. But she was in such a state as a result of the postpartum as well as the medication that she was on that her husband had to have her mother and father and his mother and father basically stay at the house for weeks. Prosecutors said Clancy was not over-medicated and deliberately planned to kill the children. Another court date is scheduled in December. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Taking a look at the forecast, if you like sunshine and warmth in late October, you are in luck. Looks like we'll have more of today's gorgeous conditions for the next couple of days. But first tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy in the upper 50s. Lots of sunshine tomorrow with temps approaching 80. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The people of Lewiston, Maine, and nearby communities have endured nearly 24 hours of fear and grief after a mass shooting Wednesday evening. 18 people are dead and 13 injured, some of them critically. The primary suspect, Robert Card, is still on the run. There's a massive manhunt underway and local residents are sheltering in place. Joining us now with the latest details is NPR's Brian Mann, who is in Lewiston. Hi, Brian. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what do we know as of now about what exactly happened last night? The details are still not complete, but it appears that just before 7 p.m. last night, shooting started at a bowling alley here. A few minutes later, there were reports to police of a second shooting at a bar and grill nearby in Lewiston. That sparked this huge response by police and also by medical crews at local hospitals. We heard today from Dr. John Alexander, who's at Maine Central Healthcare. We had some heroic efforts by our team members uh, last night, uh, continuing in today. One of the challenges with identifying patients early on was the speed with which our teams needed to act. 
and things were really chaotic. Alexander's had grievously wounded patients were coming in every three to four minutes. Uh, and again, some remain in critical condition today. Okay. And meanwhile, this manhunt, it, it continues, right? What's the situation on that front? Yeah, this is really a community that's just locked down tight. There's an expanding shelter-in-place order because Robert Carr has not been caught. Officials here say people should consider him armed and very dangerous. And right now they just have no idea where he is. You know, Elsa, I've been out on the field today where frantic searches are underway with helicopters and ground teams, and I've seen crews dozens of miles apart. Meanwhile, people are hunkered down, and, and they tell me they're scared. I can imagine so. I understand that you met two women today who've been grieving with their community in a really personal way. Can you talk about what they told you? Yeah, this was hard. I met Kelly Mitchell and Kathy Nelson this morning while they were still searching for their nephew, a guy named Joshua Seal, who'd gone missing after this attack. They knew he was at one of the locations with friends when the gunman opened fire, and they were trying to help their sister search. And we're just trying to help her find him. She can't She's find him. The hospitals. She's been up all night trying to find in the hospitals. She can't find him. But Elsa, the family reached out to me a short time ago today to say they've been notified by state police that Joshua Seal died in the attack. He is among mm -hmm. those who did not survive. He was a hearing impaired man who worked as a sign language interpreter and his wife Elizabeth posted on Facebook a short time ago that he was a great father and her best friend. God. Well, I know that the governor there, Janet Mills, was also present today. What did she have to say? Well, she's clearly exhausted. She spoke about this terrible loss, this terrible violent loss that another American community has experienced here. All Maine people are sharing in the sorrow of the families who lost loved ones last night. Normal people who were killed or injured while unwinding from a day of work. I know that the people of Lewiston are enduring immeasurable pain. I wish I could take that pain off your hearts, off your shoulders, but I promise you this, we will all help you carry that grief. And Elsa, President Biden has ordered flags across the country flown at half staff. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Lewiston, Maine. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Elsa. Among the people who Hamas took as hostages during the attacks of October 7th is a 79-year-old man named Haim Perry. He's a metal worker and sculptor, a man who helped take people to and from Gaza to receive better medical care in Israel, a father, a grandfather, and a husband who confronted a militant who entered his house, buying his wife precious time. So my father just pushed him away with his hands, he was unarmed, and he scared him away for a few minutes, but that enabled my mother to, to hide just one or two meters away, and this is how she was saved. That's one of his children, his daughter, Noam Perry. She lives in Tel Aviv now, but she was born and raised in the Israeli kibbutz of Near Oz, a small village where everybody knew everyone else. It, it was a very peaceful, green place with a lot of fields around. I know most of these people, and I regard them as my friends. Noam says of the 350 or so people in Niraz, about a quarter were killed or taken hostage on October 7th. According to Israeli officials, Hamas took about 220 hostages throughout Israel and killed over 1,400 people. 
In response, Israel continues to send airstrikes into Gaza, where over 7,000 people have been killed. One thing I think we can all agree on, wherever we stand on the political spectrum, is that hostages should not be taken and hostages must be unconditionally and immediately released. Erwin Kotler is chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights and a longtime Canadian government official. He and Noam Perry are in Washington to make the case that freeing hostages should be the top priority. They came to NPR headquarters earlier today, and I asked how the meetings have gone so far. Well, the meetings have been very both important on the one hand, uh, because the people with whom we've been meeting are in a position to take action. And as we meet now, a resolution has now been adopted in the House. There will be another one that has now been proposed that will be adopted in the Senate. These will be model resolutions that other countries can also take up, and we are establishing an interparliamentary coalition for that purpose. We also believe that the U.S. can lead this international coalition, and we've been in these meetings reminding uh, the officials of the importance of the International Committee of the Red Cross also being involved uh, much more than they have been up to now in terms of delivery of humanitarian assistance and participating in in the rescue. On a personal note, I can add that we have gotten tremendous support from all people we've met on all sides. And uh, it's not only heartwarming, it's also, I think, reinforces how, how critical the United States in the leading role of this international coalition. Uh, There are 40 nationalities involved of the hostages, and the United States is well positioned to lead both morally and effective acts to to release those hostages uh, immediately. Noam, how's your mom doing? She's devoted to help the survivors of Neuros to cope and get everything that they need. So she's devoted to this uh, amazing work since. Do you have any sense, any indication of how your father is doing, if he's well, if what's happened to him? Until two days ago, we knew nothing, just that he was alive when he left the house with the terrorists. But since the release of the two hostages from Neuroz uh, two days ago, we could get through them uh, news about him. So one of them told her son that they were together and that my father is okay, Hmm. he's alive. And this creates for us even more urgency to act now and make sure he and the other people that would not survive in captivity for long get released. Hmm. I'm glad to hear that he is alive. It has to be some comforting news to hear. It creates a lot of hope. I want to ask you both, and Noam, I'll start with you here, about Israel's military response so far. What, What do you think of it? I'm not an expert to analyze military maneuvers. Uh, The only thing I I know is that the hostages should be number one priority. Releasing all hostages should be the first priority of all parties involved. Erwin, I want to ask you the same question. I mean, you are someone who has worked in issues of justice and human rights for decades. How do you feel about the human toll of Israel's airstrikes on Gaza as they continue? Well, our whole approach is that we're focusing on the release of the hostages. We see this as a standalone issue. The hostage issue is a 
a matter of priority on our domestic and foreign policy agenda as a matter of principle and policy. Wherever you stand on the political spectrum, this is of the highest order, as I mentioned, on a humanitarian level, moral level, legal level, international level. Is there anything that can be learned by the way that hostage negotiations have happened so far that could apply to getting more people out soon? Well, I, I, I think what is needed is for people to look at this as an issue around which we all can agree is one of unconditional and immediate mandated requirements for the release. And we can then get on to all other issues and all other questions. And if we release the hostages, we'll be able to pave the way for maybe moving forward on other uh, political and legal considerations that you raised. And I want, if I can, also personally call all religious leaders here in the United States and worldwide to stand and call for the release of those hostages. This is a crime against any religion. And we saw brave Islamic leadership calling in the first few days, condemning Hamas and calling for the release of all hostages. And we want to see religious leaders leaders from all religions stand together and say, this is a humanitarian issue. This is a crime against any religion. And to call Hamas clearly to end this and release all hostages. We've been speaking with Noam Perry. Her father, Haim Perry, is among those who were taken hostage by Hamas. And Erwin Kotler, chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Thanks to both of you and Noam. Our thoughts are with you and your family, and we hope you and your father are reunited soon. Thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 25 minutes on All Things Considered, the danger journalists face in covering the Israel-Hamas war. At least 24 have died so far. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. On Wall Street, it was a down day all around. The Dow dropped three-quarters of a percent, or 251 points. The S&P fell 1.2 percent. NASDAQ lost one and three-quarters percent. In local business news, the Boston Celtics are the NBA's fourth most valuable franchise. That's according to a new list released today by Forbes. The publication puts the team's value at $4.7 billion. That's up from $4 billion last year when the team was the fifth most valuable team in the league. The Golden State Warriors, New York Knicks, and Los Angeles Lakers top this year's list. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. 
We'll have mostly cloudy skies tonight. Lows will be in the upper 50s. Tomorrow will be much like today, a beautiful late October day that feels more like late August. It'll be about 80 degrees with lots of sunshine. The first half of the weekend looks picture perfect. Saturday will be sunny with a high around 80 again. Sunday we'll have a chance of showers. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy and we'll have temps near 60. It is 79 degrees in Boston at 420. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. DataIQ.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. We have watched as communities across the American South have removed Confederate monuments from public spaces in recent years. Some have gone to museums, others are locked away in storage. But one particularly controversial statue from Charlottesville, Virginia, is on a different journey to be completely transformed into something new. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. A massive bronze sculpture of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in uniform, astride his horse traveler, stood in a downtown Charlottesville park for nearly a century. It was at the center of a deadly white nationalist rally in 2017 when neo-Nazis and white supremacists tried to stop the city's plans to remove the statue. It finally came down in 2021. Charlottesville prevailed in a prolonged legal battle with the Sons of Confederate Veterans and other groups and donated the Lee statue to a coalition that proposed to melt it down and create a more inclusive public art installation. We want to transform something that has been toxic uh, in the Charlottesville community. Jelaine Schmidt is a religious studies professor at the University of Virginia and one of the project's organizers. People are willing to die for symbols. And as we saw in Charlottesville, they're willing to kill for them too. Lawsuits to stop the project failed. And last weekend, organizers moved forward with great secrecy to disassemble and melt down the Lee Monument. The work is being done at an out-of-state foundry. NPR agreed not to reveal its location or the identity of the workers because they fear repercussions. They use a torch to score the head of the statue in the pattern of a death mask. Lee's face falls to the floor. The symbolism is poignant for Andrea Douglas. She directs the Jefferson School African American Cultural Center in Charlottesville, which is leading the project. The act of myth-making that has occurred around Robert E. Lee, removing his face is emblematic of the kind of removal of that kind of myth. The project is called Swords into Plowshares, taken from a Bible verse in the book of Isaiah. A furnace is set up in a side yard of the foundry using propane and forced air to top 2,000 degrees.
workers feed pieces of the verdigris statue, including General Lee's saber, into a large vessel inside the furnace called a crucible. We are turning swords into something else. You know, that saber is the object of violence and that it was the object of power, it's the object of conquest. Just after nightfall, foundry workers removed the crucible, glowing a bright red-orange, and poured the steaming molten bronze into molds. Jelaine Schmidt says the most exciting part for her is seeing the new ingots created. Because that's about going forward. That's, you know, oh, here they are now. They're flipping it out. See here? You know, turn that upside down. and It's like a banana bread pan, you know, or a meatloaf or something. You got to... <laughs> knock it out of there. Oh, there it is. For security reasons few people were invited to watch, among them is Ashley Woodard Henderson, who feels the weight of what she's witnessing. Oh my gosh, I mean, as like a proud black Appalachian who is born and raised in the South, um, I know this to be more than just a symbolic moment. Henderson is co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, which has long been an incubator for labor and civil rights activists. She sees opportunity in this moment. I'm most excited about what, what it looks like to repair, what reparations looks like for folks in Charlottesville, what it looks like to tell this new story. I'm, I'm hyped. I feel excited. I think this is a joyful occasion in a really dire strait of political nastiness that we've been surviving. For Methodist minister Isaac Collins, the deadly white nationalist violence in Charlottesville was a turning point for the nation and says it's surreal to see the focal point of that episode disassembled. You know, I was thinking Humpty Dumpty couldn't be put back together again. <laughs> I was like, it's over, baby. This thing is never going back up. We still have a lot of work to do, but this statue that has cost us so much so much violence, so much hurt, so much bloodshed, it's gone and it's never going to be put back together the way it was. The melting down of the Lee statue will take weeks. It weighed nearly 10,000 pounds. Organizers say the next step will be choosing an artist who will craft the bronze ingots into a new art form to be displayed in Charlottesville. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Putting three meals on the table every day was a struggle for millions of Americans last year. That's the sobering conclusion of a new report from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It found that hunger in the U.S. rose sharply in 2022. NPR's Maria Godoy has more. The report found that last year, 44.2 million people in the U.S. lived in households that had trouble getting enough food to eat. That's up from 33.8 million people in 2021. Those families include more than 13 million children experiencing food insecurity, a jump of nearly 45% from the prior year. That's a very large increase. It's not particularly unexpected, though. Elaine Waxman is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. She notes the findings reverse a decade-long decline in hunger and food insecurity in the U.S., and they reflect two major forces that hit many families' pocketbooks last year. One was the extensive increase in food prices that just about everybody experienced. And the other thing was a lot of the programs that had buffered people's experience during the pandemic were retired or 
or rolled back in some way. Including an expanded child tax credit that temporarily gave families with children extra money, also increased benefits from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and free school meals for every child. Kelly Horton of the Food Research and Action Center notes that even as these supports ended, food prices and housing costs shot up. All of these things converging, we have a lot of people who are living on the edge and many millions more now. The USDA report found nearly 7 million households were so financially squeezed last year, they had to skip meals. In many households, even kids had to go without eating at times. Waxman of the Urban Institute notes this could have serious health consequences. In particular, we worry about that for children because, you know, their trajectory now influences what happens to them later. Research has found children who experience food insecurity are more likely to have poor health outcomes, including cognitive or developmental delays and higher rates of hospitalization. Overall, households with children and those of color experience food insecurity at significantly higher rates than the national average. The rates of hunger for Black and Latino households were more than double the rates for white households. Maria Godoy, NPR News. This is NPR News. And thanks for spending part of your afternoon with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 24 journalists have been killed since the start of the Israel-Hamas war earlier this month. The group says it's the deadliest stretch for journalists in the region in more than 30 years. Temps will dip to the upper 50s tonight under mostly cloudy skies. It'll be around 80 degrees tomorrow and mostly sunny. Saturday, more of the same, lots of sun and a high around 80. Rain moves in over the course of Sunday. We'll have temps that day in the mid-50s. Right now, it is 79 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Private sector strikes in the U.S. declined in the Reagan era, but more recently, they've become more frequent. I think it's quite possible we look back at this time as a turning point as well, a turn away from the kind of dynamics that have defined power in the American workplace since the 1980s. We'll hear what's causing that shift in power. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Israeli troops and tanks launched a brief raid into northern Gaza, striking several Hamas militant targets in an effort to clear the battlefield. The raid comes ahead of a widely expected ground invasion by Israeli troops, as the United Nations warned it's on the verge of running out of fuel in the Gaza Strip, forcing the aid agency to sharply cut relief efforts to the more than two million people there. Gaza has been under constant bombardment for nearly three weeks after Hamas launched a brutal attack, killing more than 1,400 Israelis. Here's NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny. A few dozen aid trucks have made it into Gaza in recent days. That is just a sliver of what aid organizations say is needed. It's been full of medical supplies and food, but not fuel. Israel has said supplying fuel could mean it gets diverted by Hamas, which continues to launch rockets and other attacks on Israel. 
The Israel Defense Forces claim Hamas has plenty of fuel stockpiled. In regard to the need for fuel on social media, they posted, Ask Hamas. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny in Tel Aviv. That pilot accused of trying to take down a commercial flight in midair on Sunday is scheduled to appear in federal court sometime this afternoon in Oregon. NPR's Kristen Wright reports Joseph Emerson was off duty riding in the cockpit on Horizon Air when authorities allege he tried to shut down the engines. Emerson is charged with one federal count of interfering with a flight crew. Court documents say the Alaska Airlines pilot told police he'd used psychedelic mushrooms and pulled the emergency shutoff handles because he thought he was dreaming. Prosecutors say after he was restrained, Emerson tried to grab the handle of an emergency exit. Records show Emerson told police he was having a, quote, nervous breakdown, hadn't slept, and has been depressed. Tuesday, Emerson pleaded not guilty to 83 state counts of attempted murder. Passengers were flying from Washington state to San Francisco the flight diverted to Portland. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Students at Bates College spent harrowing hours in lockdown overnight. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, the college's campus is in the heart of Lewiston, Maine, between the two sites of last night's mass shooting. Senior Antonia Taylor was holding a dance rehearsal when the shooting began. She and other dancers spent 13 hours sheltering in their studio before returning to their dorm rooms Thursday morning. Taylor went to Bates from Linfield, Mass. three years ago, in part because of its small, tight-knit atmosphere. The people here are all about community and there's such a connection. And seeing this happen to this community is just so heartbreaking because everyone's going to know somebody and... Everyone is going to be affected. College leaders say one employee was injured and no students were harmed Wednesday. But with the suspected shooter still at large, Bates' campus remains locked down. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts state police say they're not aware of any connection between this state and Robert Card, the man wanted in connection with the Maine shootings. State police say they're in regular contact with their counterparts in Maine. So far, one Massachusetts trooper assigned to the bomb squad and his canine partner have been deployed to the Lewiston, Maine area. Despite the stark warnings, state transportation officials say most drivers did not heed their advice to avoid driving during the eight-week closure of the Sumner Tunnel this past summer. New data released today by the MBTA show more than 75 percent of Sumner Tunnel drivers still drove during the shutdown using different routes to get to their destination. The MBTA says people are fickle and it's hard to get them to change their minds. More weekend closures of the Sumner Tunnel are planned before year's end and another two-month shutdown is planned next summer. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welland Montessori School, a five-time winner of Boston Parents Family Favorite Award, educating toddler to grade 8. Open house November 5th. More at Welland.org. And Clark. New England's Sub-Zero and Wolf Showroom and Test Kitchen, where you can cook on Wolf appliances to make informed selections. More at ClarkLiving.com. Some clouds will move in for the overnight tonight as temps dip to the upper 50s. Tomorrow, a gorgeous day, mostly sunny, have a high around 80 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. 
Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Some of the world's diplomats gave speeches before the United Nations General Assembly today. The Palestinian ambassador urged the U.N. to, quote, stop the killing, by which he meant Israel's bombardment of Gaza. An Israeli diplomat said the war has, quote, nothing to do with the Palestinians and should simply focus on Hamas, which attacked Israel on October 7th. Other diplomats in the room included the foreign minister of Iran, a country which is a powerful supporter of Hamas. Afterwards, the foreign minister spoke with our colleague, Stephen Skeep, who is in New York and joins us now. Hi, Steve. Hi there, Elsa. So can you just first remind listeners how Iran is connected with Hamas? Yeah, all you have to do is go to State Department annual reports on terrorism, and they have documented over the years how Iran has provided support to Hamas, helping to arm and even train it. And after the October 7th attack, Hamas spokesmen talking to the media publicized Iran's role, saying that Hamas did the attack, they decided to do it, but Iran provided, quote, help and support. <laughs> um, Iran has claimed it wasn't involved, but they did openly celebrate the attack. Now, when I spoke with the foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, he said Iran provides only political support to Hamas, which is their official line. But when I pushed back, I said, really, you deny providing training, coordination, money or weapons? He said, I'm just talking about right now, not really talking about the many, many years of the past. Huh. Well, I understand that when the foreign minister was speaking before the U.N., he criticized Israel's response to the Hamas attack. Did he did he offer any insight on how Iran might respond at this point? This was my biggest question, Elsa, and one of the biggest reasons to be talking with the foreign minister of Iran right now. What does Iran intend to do? What does it intend to support in terms of its allies? There is a risk of a wider war, which would involve groups like Hezbollah, uh, which is, of course, along uh, Israel's northern border in Lebanon, another mm-hmm. group that Iran has supported over the years. And uh, there's already exchanges of fire between Hezbollah and Israel in recent days. So the question is, does that escalate from these somewhat symbolic attacks to a full-blown war? And here's what the foreign minister said about that. They, they have uh, their, their finger on the trigger, you know, much more powerful and deeper than than uh, you, you have already witnessed. Therefore, I believe that if the situation continues and if uh, women and children and the civilians uh, are killed, uh, still killed in Gaza and in the West Bank, and anything would be possible. So not a prediction there, Elsa, but a warning as Israel prepares for what's considered a likely ground assault in Gaza. Right, certainly a warning. Well, would it be in Iran's interest to widen the war? It's hard to see how, because Israel has struck Iran. It's a sort of undeclared war that's been going on for many years. Israel has a lot of power here, but Iran has posed itself as an ideological leader against Israel. So there's different pressures at play. I'm curious, Steve, did the foreign minister acknowledge in any way today the fact that this attack on October 7th targeted civilians? Uh, He never mentioned it in his speech at the United Nations. I asked him about Israeli videos that I have seen, that many journalists have seen, showing Hamas fighters targeting civilians, uh, targeting people who are clearly unarmed. You even see the bodies of of unarmed people. The foreign minister replied only that the Israeli response to all of that is disproportionate. 
That is NPR's Steve Inskeep talking about his interview with Iran's foreign minister. You can hear the full conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition. Thank you so much, Steve. You're welcome. The new series, Fellow Travelers, follows two gay men over the course of four decades, from the McCarthy hearings of the 1950s through the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. At the start of their relationship in 1953, both men work for the federal government in Washington, D.C. They live under the constant threat of exposure, even when they find themselves in the seemingly safe space of one of D.C.'s underground gay bars. Hey, Buster. See that red light in the cash register there? That comes on, you better make 12 inches of daylight between you and your friend right here. And do it fast. Only takes three seconds for the cops to come downstairs. Glenn Weldon is host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, and he's here to talk about fellow travelers. Hi, Glenn. Hey, Wana. So, Glenn, I mean, this sounds like a phenomenal setup for a show. Tell us a little bit more about the two main characters. Well, they're played by Matt Bomer from White Collar and Jonathan Bailey from Bridgerton, two just egregiously, insultingly handsome actors, and it's about the tension between Bomer's character Hawkins, who wants a successful State Department career, so he is perfectly content to stay in the closet, get married, have kids, while hooking up with men, versus Tim, the character played by Jonathan Bailey, who's a lot more idealistic, he wants to live openly and honestly, and the show really drives home a grim truth, which was that there was a lot more Hawkinses than Tims back then, lots of men lived their whole lives in the closet, and if it hadn't been for activists like Tim, who weren't content who kept pushing for more, nothing would have changed. It sounds really interesting. But Glenn, for you, having watched it, does this show fall short in any ways? Well, I mean, who's telling the story for me? Because historically, of course, the fight for queer rights was led by people of color, was led by trans folks, you know, marginalized groups who could be more easily targeted because they couldn't blend into the white male power structure like these guys could. They didn't have that luxury. So... This show makes an effort to include other points of view with a storyline about a black reporter played by Jelani Aladdin. But man, that focus on Bomer and Bailey's characters just narrows what the show can end up saying. So I understand that it's based on the 2007 novel by Thomas Mallon, and he's an author of historical fiction who's known for doing his research and getting those fine details right. Does that carry over into the series? Oh, it sure does. And now we're talking about my favorite thing about the show. It really captures how dangerous it was to be gay at that time. The characters are always looking over their shoulders, speaking in whispers, speaking in codes, hiding in the shadows and scrambling just to find a place to be together. And you can hear that tension in this clip. I'm being investigated. They had me followed and caught me coming out of the chicken hut. The chicken hut? Christ, George, even my mother knows that place is queer. Now, that chicken hut they mentioned, Juana, was an actual gay bar here in D.C. just off Lafayette Square. I walked past it the other day. It's now a parking garage. Wow. I mean, Glenn, we've been talking here about authenticity, but historically, and especially on TV, I want to note, queer sex is treated very differently than straight sex. Is that the case here? Oh, no. <laughs> no, we, we uh, it's not the case. We Listeners should know that. I mean, these two guys have lots and lots and lots of sex that is shot with exactly the same level of explicitness you'd see on any other streaming show with a, with a straight couple. And, you know, for queer folks like me, that counts as progress. But, I mean, uh, let's be real. In terms of authenticity, I mean, both these actors are very fit. They are both an mm-hmm. in Instagram fitness model shape, which doesn't really scream 1953 to me. But, I mean, the show gets so many other aspects of gay life back then right. I can forgive some anachronistic abs, you know, twist my arm. I'll muddle through. (laughs) 
That is Pop Culture Happy Hour host Glenn Weldon talking with us about Fellow Travelers, which debuts Friday on Paramount Plus and Sunday on Showtime. Glenn, thanks as always. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. At least 24 journalists are among the more than 8,000 people killed in the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. That is according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, a group that is keeping tally of the loss of life among the very people covering the conflict. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has more. The high tally of journalists killed in the ongoing war includes 20 Palestinian journalists, three Israelis, and one Lebanese journalist. Lucy Westcott from the Committee to Protect Journalists says this conflict has resulted in the deadliest stretch for the press in Israel and the occupied territories since the start of the committee's tracking efforts in 1992. This is unprecedented. Westcott is the emergencies director for the CPJ. She said that the last time journalists faced such heightened danger in Israel was during the second intifada of the early 2000s. More than 4,300 people died. And during that unrest, CPJ documented 13 journalists killed in the conflict. The difference here is that uprising spanned around five years. The current war in Gaza is still less than three weeks old. Palestinian journalists are facing heavier losses because they are often more likely to be located in Gaza, which has faced unrelenting airstrikes from Israel in response to the Hamas attack on October 7th. And freelance local and photojournalists are uh, particularly at risk because they not only sort of lack that traditional uh, support of a newsroom, but because of the very nature of their work, need to be closer to, to what we'd call the action. Among those recently killed is Palestinian journalist and filmmaker Rushdi Saraj. His company he co-founded, Ain Media, said he was killed in an Israeli airstrike in the Gaza Strip. They said Siraj gave a voice to the people of Gaza. Journalists in Gaza have also lost family members to the violence. On Wednesday, Al Jazeera said an Israeli airstrike had killed the wife, 15-year-old son, 7-year-old daughter, and grandson of the network's Arabic bureau chief, Wael Dadu. Israeli officials have long maintained that they don't deliberately target civilians or journalists, and they respect press freedom. But Westcott said the danger facing reporters covering this conflict goes beyond airstrikes and gunfire. CPJ is looking at more than 100 additional cases of journalists killed, missing, detained, threatened, and um, the damage to journalists' offices and homes. CPJ is also investigating cases of threats, cyber attacks, and censorship targeting journalists as they carry out their work in Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. It's just... Very, very important to remember and for all governments to remember that journalists are themselves civilians um, in conflicts and they play a vital role in making sure that we can all understand what is going on. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News.
And tomorrow on Morning Edition, for more than seven decades, Tico Records has produced Latin soul music of the highest order, including artists like Tito Puente and Celia Cruz. A new compilation album honors the label's legacy and its role in shaping Latin music. And yes, there will be some really, really great music. You can hear that story tomorrow on Morning Edition. Listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up just after the top of the hour, the many challenges the new House Speaker, Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, has to take on, both within his party and in passing legislation that can get through the Democrat-controlled Senate. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson and Wales University. Prepare for an immersive approach to education, from research and internships to cutting-edge labs, students explore their passions and discover new ones. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. In sports, the Bruins look to make it seven wins in a row to start the season as they face the Anaheim Ducks at the Garden tonight. Well, if you like sunshine and warmth in late October, you are in luck. Looks like we'll have more of today's beautiful conditions for the next couple of days. But first, tonight, it'll be mostly cloudy and in the upper 50s. Lots of sunshine tomorrow with temps approaching 80, more of the same for Saturday. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for homes and offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo window and innuendo.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. With the crisis in Israel and Gaza, we'll hear from our go-to book expert Tracy Thomas about the books she's reading to get more context. I've been looking to the people who have dedicated their lives and their lives' work to explaining this to the rest of us. That's next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. From the colonial Salem witch trials... We've got to tell her they'll be calling us witches. Witchery's a hanging era. ...to the outcasts in the craft. I'm as a feather stiff as a board. I'm as a feather stiff as a board. I'm as a feather stiff as a board. To the magic of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Spirits of the forest, I pronounce my intentions to thee. Come forth and seek me, and equal we will be. Witches have long cast a spell on American entertainment, but they aren't just a figment of our imagination. Witchcraft is a real practice, and people who practice witchcraft are all around you. But what does it even mean to be a witch? I mean, how does one begin a spiritual journey into the occult? Well, one writer decided to figure that out for herself by spending an entire year as a practicing witch. My name is Diana Helmuth, and the title of the book is The Witching Year, a memoir of earnest fumbling through modern witchcraft.
So I started my witchcraft journey arbitrarily at the end of July, and the next day was a high holiday called Lamas. It's the first harvest festival. It's originally pulled from the Celtic cross-quarter days. There's a lot of myths associated with it, but chiefly you're talking about sacrifice and what you need to let go of in order to have your crops grow for the rest of the year. And I realized this while reading a book, flipping through some, some pages and I go, oh crap, I don't have the sacred knife. I don't have an altar. I don't have anything. So I kind of in a panic run down to an occult shop in Northern California. There happens to be two down the street. And I go there and I grab all this stuff. And you know, the man there mentioned, you look like you're getting the whole starter kit. I said, I am, and I have no idea what I'm doing. And he says, well, you don't need to worry about it. It'll be fine. And I say, yeah, it's just it's just me there, right? And then he turns to me and he stops laughing and he goes, well, the goddess will be there. And then I stop laughing and I'm like, right, the, the, go the goddess will be there. And, and then I went home and I did this ritual. To me, it felt like a disaster. But the funniest part is I describe it to other people and they say, yeah, that sounds pretty normal. What do you think's gonna happen here? And I'm like, I think I'm gonna feel deeply connected to the flow of the universe and sure of myself and kind of blissed out on divine connection. And another friend tell me, that's, that's cocaine. That's not religion. That's not what we're doing here. Where I grew up, it was very clear to me and everyone I knew that if you were smart, you were an atheist. And I wanted to be smart. I wanted to be thought of as intelligent. So I rejected most religion and most spirituality throughout most of my life. And then during COVID and in general, as I got older, the idea of a self-directed religion that promised me a way to have some control over the universe. I think increasingly we find ourselves facing things that really affect us deeply that we have very little control over, right? Climate change, housing prices, health insurance bills, pandemics, who's going to become the president? And here's this religion, this spirituality, that says you can have an effect on these things that feel so much bigger than you. You just need a couple candles and some willpower. If I'm being really honest, I was tired of God being dead. I didn't want to feel like I didn't care about the divine anymore. I wanted to admit to myself that I did care, that I did want to feel held by the divine, but getting through the shame of that, to be honest, is something that is interrogated throughout the book. Like, why was that so hard for me to admit? It took me until about month seven before I tried to make a connection with the goddess, who is a central figure in almost every form of witchcraft, whether or not she's a real deity up in the sky or she's a metaphor for the interconnectedness of everything on earth, there's this idea of the goddess. And I was hesitant around it because I didn't want to feel like I was playing make-believe. Again, this goes back to just being so afraid of feeling stupid. So I go and I set up this ritual to try and talk to a particular goddess. And I'm by myself in my office in Oakland. I'm sitting in front of an altar that I've made out of a cardboard box. I have a stranger's playlist going on Spotify. My cat is on the other side of the door staring at me. And after about an hour, 
something happened. I just suddenly felt flooded with bliss. And after that experience, it became very difficult for me to continue to make fun of this part of myself that wanted to be connected with the divine. Shame just wasn't involved. I felt I found a correct way to practice witchcraft for myself, but I, to be honest, still don't feel 100% sure about it. And something I have accepted is maybe that's the point. So I dabbled with a lot of these subcultures within witchcraft or that overlap with witchcraft, like astrology and tarot. And there are things where I'm just like, this just isn't for me. But uh, there was one thing that really stuck with me, which were my tarot cards which I was not expecting. My tarot cards scare me. Like, I don't like to look at them for too long. I have learned that I don't always want to ask them a question because I don't necessarily want the answer because it's not always fun. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's terrifying. Sometimes you don't want to look at yourself in the mirror that hard. Witchcraft is a, is a subculture. For the vast majority of people who are practicing it, it is not something you are born into. It's something you choose to be a part of. And I think people tend to make fun of it in the mainstream. They think it's goofy, they think it's silly, they think these people are delusional. And really these are just people who are trying to be more comfortable in their own skin and also, you know, they're adopting a spirituality that centers the earth and personal growth and I think those are two very good things and we should not be making fun of them. I wanted this book to be something of a permission slip. Like, it's okay to explore this stuff and feel like you don't know what you're doing and feel like you're probably doing it wrong and still have that journey be valid and worthwhile. That was writer Diana Helmuth talking about her new book, The Witching Year, a memoir of earnest fumbling through modern witchcraft. It's out now. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. From Renewal by Anderson, supporter of the American Cancer Society, information about Renewal by Anderson's October campaign to help defeat cancer is at renewalbyandersoncares.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR, calling all crafters. Join us at City Space on Monday, November 13th for an evening dedicated to DIY and homemade creations. Free tickets at wbur.org events.
For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover city space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The new Speaker of the House, Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson, faces a slew of political challenges, resolving chaos in his own party and getting legislation through Congress with Democrats controlling the Senate. So what comes first? It's Thursday, October 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the October 7th attack by Hamas militants has left Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's reputation as a leader in jeopardy. He knows that his political survival at this point depends on how much he flattens Gaza. Political impacts of the crisis ahead. We'll have the latest on the hurricane destruction in Acapulco. And conservationists work to preserve a wildlife corridor that takes migrating animals straight through Disney World. It's 5.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Police are still looking for the man who opened fire in two locations in Lewiston, Maine last night. 18 people are dead, 13 others injured, some severely. The community there is in shock. Maine Public's Nick Song spoke to one local resident about the moment word began to spread. As the senior pastor for Calvary Chapel, Lewiston, Auburn, Aaron Davis was leading a Bible study session Wednesday evening when the phones of a few congregation members began to ring. We have quite a few of our members that come out of a certain uh, residential treatment program. Members of that house good, good friends of theirs, they were actually um, part of this bowling league that was happening last night. They were getting phone calls, letting them know that their friends were there, they barely got away, um, and they were hiding behind trees at the time. A shelter-in-place order remains in effect for Andrew Scoggin in northern Sacagawak counties as the manhunt for the shooter continues. For NPR News, I'm Nick Song in Lewiston, Maine. President Biden, meanwhile, is weighing in on the main shooting by ordering all U.S. flags to be flown at half-staff. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre also noting the president tried and failed to convince House Republicans to ban assault-style weapons and high-capacity magazines. She says Congress cannot continue to sit by and do nothing. It does not have to be this way. It's within Congress's power to pass legislation that will make our streets safer, that will make our community safer, that will make our schools safer. It is just the latest mass shooting in the U.S. so far this year involving multiple fatalities. Special Counsel Jack Smith is urging a federal judge to lift the temporary hold on the gag order she imposed on former President Donald Trump in his federal election interference case. comes after Trump publicly targeted a witness in the case as former chief of staff. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin issued a gag order against Trump last week that bars him from making statements about prosecutors, court staff, or inflammatory comments targeting witnesses. Trump has appealed and wants the gag order to be put on hold while that plays out in court. Chutkin has lifted the restrictions on Trump temporarily while she allows the two sides to argue the legal merits of a longer pause. 
Now in a new court filing overnight, the special counsel says the gag order should remain in place pending Trump's appeal. Smith says the former president continues to target witnesses, most recently with a social media post and public remarks about his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Trump's legal team will have a chance to respond. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Israel is giving increasing indications its ground assault against Hamas in Gaza could come soon. Israeli troops and tanks launched an hours-long ground raid into northern Gaza overnight, with the military saying several militant targets were struck to prepare the battlefield. The raid came after the UN warned it's on the verge of running out of fuel in Gaza. On Wall Street, the Dow fell 251 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The special agent in charge of the FBI's Boston office calls the mass shooting in Maine an act of senseless violence. Special Agent Jody Cohen says the Boston office's evidence response teams are processing the crime scenes. Victim specialists from the office are working with people affected by the tragedy. Cohen pledges the FBI will work night and day with their partners to get answers. She's urging anyone with information on the suspect or shootings to come forward. Boston city officials say they'll begin enforcing a new ban on tents and encampments starting next Wednesday, November 1st. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the ordinance aims to clean up the area around Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. The plan requires city workers to offer people shelter, transportation, and storage for personal items before they take down somebody's tent. Mayor Michelle Wu says police will be accompanied by public health outreach workers. Our goal is to permanently shift the dynamic on the street and in the surrounding neighborhood, and citywide, to be safer and healthier for everyone. Advocates fear that involuntary displacement will further harm people struggling with homelessness and addiction. The city estimates there are about 85 people living in 52 tents in the area known as Mass and Cass. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The woman accused of killing her three children in their Duxbury home in January will continue to be held without bail at Tewksbury State Hospital. Lindsay Clancy pleaded not guilty today at her arraignment from the hospital. Prosecutors argued she deliberately planned to murder her three children. Clancy's attorney says she was suffering from postpartum depression and was over-medicated. Her next court appearance is scheduled for December. Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan says there are many reasons Republican Mike Johnson is not a good choice to be Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Trahan told WBUR's Radio Boston today Johnson has a history of supporting some of his party's most extreme policies. Mike Johnson voted less than a month ago to force a catastrophic uh, government shutdown that would have devastated our economy. He also supports steep cuts to Social Security and Medicare. Uh, He's co-sponsored not one, but three different bills to ban abortion nationwide, including here in the Commonwealth. Congressman Johnson won election yesterday as the new Speaker of the House, three weeks after former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was ousted. Johnson says they will govern well and the American people will be very pleased with those results. In sports, the Bruins are back home tonight after a four-game road trip. They look to remain unbeaten, extending a six-game winning streak when they host the Anaheim Ducks at TD Garden. We'll have mostly cloudy skies tonight. Lows will be in the upper 50s. Tomorrow will be much like today, a beautiful late October day that feels more like late August. It'll be about 80 degrees with lots of sunshine. Then the first half of the weekend looks picture perfect. Saturday will be sunny with a high around 80 again. It's 79 degrees in Boston. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. After more than three weeks of paralysis, the House of Representatives is back in business. Since new House Speaker Mike Johnson took the gavel yesterday, members have seen a flurry of legislative activity on the floor. But with new leadership in place, House Republicans could be headed for a new collision course as they take up more controversial bills. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has been very busy keeping an eye on all of this. (laughs) Hi, Claudia. I want to. Okay, so Speaker Johnson ascended to the speakership after counting here three contenders failed before him. And let's not forget, after the ouster of former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, hardline conservatives clearly unleashed much of the political chaos that dominated this month. So did they win? Well, from their vantage point, those who ousted McCarthy, they'd say yes. They showed the muscle that they had in the conference throughout the process that followed, and they were led by former President Trump, who had loud cheers or even jeers for certain members as he weighed in often on the search for a new speaker. Now, they didn't get their first choice for speaker. This was House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, but they found an ally in Johnson who has at times aligned himself with their objectives. But one common complaint we heard from the rest of the conference is that these agitators burned a bridge without a plan. That is a clear path on who would replace McCarthy. And this unleashed this chaos you mentioned. And that may have deeply damaged this image that Republicans are capable of governing just ahead of a presidential election year. Okay, so now that they've got a new speaker, what types of new challenges are House Republicans going to confront? Plenty. Some say this is where the real work begins. They're on the clock with just three weeks to go before a November 17 deadline to avert a government shutdown. And there's also a White House supplemental funding request for aid for Israel and Ukraine. And not all Republicans are on board with this. I mean, Claudia, that sounds like a pretty tall order. And I follow the House pretty closely. Johnson does not have a lot of leadership experience. Right. Is Do people think he's ready for the challenge? Well, he says he is. And House Republicans say he is. But the devil is in the details. He's going to be tested quickly and repeatedly with this series of legislative demands facing him in such a tight window. For the conference, Johnson was the right person for this moment. He has better connections throughout. He's respected. And he didn't have the kind of political baggage that hurt the contenders before him. But there's clearly concerns how a new speaker who doesn't have a lot of leadership experience will lead this fractious conference and divided chamber against some very hard deadlines and difficult issues. Okay, so Democrats run the Senate and, of course, President Biden is a Democrat, which means that Speaker Johnson will have to work with Democrats to pass bills, including those spending bills we were just talking about. How are Democrats approaching this? Well, I talked to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries last night after they had talked to Johnson following his victory. Both seemed perhaps hopeful about a path forward in terms of working with him. Jeffries today told reporters, however, that they have very different points of opinion. For example, Jeffries doesn't doubt Johnson's commitment to his principles, which are strongly informed by his evangelical Christian faith, but he disagrees with many of them as they relate to, quote, inclusive America. So that's access to abortion rights and protections for the LGBTQ community. And that mirrors where a lot of the Democratic caucus stands. 
That said, in a surprise today, President Biden met with Johnson and Jeffries, perhaps in a sign of goodwill. Any regrets among House Democrats that they helped with former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's ouster earlier this month? It doesn't appear so. That said, it's also clear they're in the minority. They didn't have a say who was going to replace McCarthy. And after this very chaotic time, they're apprehensive if Johnson will be able to work with them on a bipartisan fashion, especially after seeing the price that McCarthy paid for doing that when hardliners initiated his, his, his ouster after the bipartisan debt limit deal and the current government temporary funding measure that's in place now. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you much. Officials in parts of central Maine are telling residents that they still need to remain locked in their homes as the suspect in last night's deadly mass shooting remains at large. At least 18 people were shot and killed at a bowling alley and at a bar restaurant in the town of Lewiston. Thirteen others were wounded. Maine Governor Janet Mills said the entire state and nation stand with Lewiston. This city did not deserve this terrible assault on its citizens, on its peace of mind, on its sense of security. No city does, no state, no people. Now, police in Lewiston say 40-year-old Robert R. Card II, an Army reservist, is wanted for murder. Joining us now to talk about the latest is NPR's Martin Costi. Hi, Martin. Hi, good afternoon. So bring us up to speed here. What is known as of now about what happened last night in Lewiston? Well, shortly before 7 p.m., police there got a call about an active shooter at a bowling alley. And even as they were still heading there, sending units in that direction, they were told then to start diverting to another business, this time a bar and grill on the other side of town. And at first, they were calling it a second active shooter, though it soon became clear this was the same person. Mm -hmm. And as I was listening to this police scanner, the recordings of the police scanners last night, Lewiston sounded like a city under attack. The police kept chasing unconfirmed reports of possible shooters at other places, other bars and restaurants, uh, there were no more shootings, but the, the police quickly moved to shut down bars that hadn't yet closed. There was also a scare at the Walmart. Some employees were sheltering in the cold storage till the police showed up to clear them out. Um, the police also said on the radio that they were in touch with a family member of the likely suspect uh, who had told them that he also planned to attack another bar, which they then confirmed was already closed or had never opened that evening. Um, but, you know, and that's kind of how things now remain in the city. Uh, almost 24 hours later, authorities say that uh, Card, the suspect, should be considered armed and dangerous. People should not approach him. Business is closed. Um, and residents should stay in their houses, keep their cars locked. And this manhunt is just uh, ongoing. Yeah. That's ongoing. So this alleged shooter, as we said, Robert R. Card II, who is he? Tell us more about this person. Well, he's white, 40, longtime resident of Bowdoin near Lewiston. He's an Army reservist, a Sergeant First Class. Uh, he enlisted back in 2002, but never was deployed into combat. Divorced in 2007. But perhaps the most pertinent bit of information we have right now is about something that happened to him this past summer. He was at a National Guard training facility in New York State near West Point when Army Reserve officials reported that he was behaving erratically. They were worried about his safety. Uh, they called in the state, New York State Police, who then transported him to to an army hospital for evaluation. Now, we don't know for sure what kind, if any, mental health treatment he received. We are still waiting for some confirmation about that from the army. Interesting. Well, if Card was experiencing some sort of mental health crisis, does Maine have like one of those red flag laws where you'd be allowed, you know, if you were a concerned family member to ask a court to temporarily remove the person's firearms, right? 
Not quite. There was an attempt to pass a law like that about four years ago, but instead they have what some call a yellow flag law. The police can start that process, but not family. Uh, So in this case, if that, say, that family member of cards last night who was talking to the police, if they had wanted to perhaps do something about his guns after the incident this past summer, they would not have, have had a legal route to do that. Okay, and the surveillance video released by the police shows the suspect with a long rifle when he was entering the bowling alley. Do we know anything else about the weapon or weapons that were used? Well, from that image, it's clearly a a, a semi-automatic rifle of some kind. This is the kind that shoots bullets much faster than a handgun would, so they do a lot more damage to the human body. Um, we're not likely to get an exact description, though, of what the exact model of this weapon was until the police have it in their hands for closer inspection. That is NPR's Martin Costi. Thank you, Martin. You're welcome. One of the most accomplished players and managers in Major League Baseball history is stepping back from the game. Astros manager Dusty Baker officially announced his retirement today, just days after Houston was eliminated from the playoffs in Game 7 of the American League Championship. As Jack Williams reports from Houston Public Media, Baker leaves a game he's been playing and managing for more than 50 years. On Monday night, after the Astros had been eliminated, Baker looked and sounded like a man who was ready to go home. Now he'll get that chance. First, I'm going to go home, talk to my daughter that thinks that she's my mother, and um, uh, spend some time with my grandkids and, and let the Lord tell me where to go and, and what to do. It will be a big adjustment for someone who has been on a baseball field professionally in some capacity for most of the past half century starting as a 19-year-old player in 1968. He ended his playing career with almost 2,000 hits and a World Series ring. His managerial career started with the Giants in 1993, and he later led the Cubs, Reds, and Nationals before he got a call from Astros owner Jim Crane, who needed a manager to navigate a reeling Astros team caught up in the fallout of a cheating scandal in 2020. You came in and helped us when we needed some help. And you did a great job. And I think you were the only guy that could do that in the business. So I told you that the other day. Did a fantastic job. The record speaks for itself. That record included four American League Championship Series appearances and a World Series win last season. Baker ranked seventh all-time with more than 2,000 managerial career wins. He's also the only manager to lead five different teams to the playoffs and is considered a sure bet to be elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Astros general manager Dana Brown joked about Baker's longevity. He's 74 years old. You know, as a child, I watched him play on TV and just honored to be, you know, how old. It was in the 70s, but so it's just an honor to be around such a good baseball man. Baker leaves the game with decades of accomplishments, but says he doesn't feel like he's done all he can. I went to Hank Aaron's funeral. All these people were talking about how Hank had contributed and helped out their college education and how he had, you know, affected this life and that life. And I came back home and told my wife, I don't feel like I've done anything. With that, Baker, dressed in a sharp blazer and tie, walked away from a game that's kept him going for 55 years. For NPR News, I'm Jack Williams in Houston. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Around 6 tonight, we're expecting officials in Maine to provide an update on the mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine, and the search for a suspect. Live coverage followed by analysis tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR and the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute. Hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Johnson & Wales University. Not just a number. A designer, an engineer, an accountant. A J. Wu Wildcat. Discover more at jwu.edu. On Wall Street today, the Dow dropped three-quarters of a percent, or 251 points. The S&P fell 1.2 percent. NASDAQ lost one and three-quarters percent. In local business news, the co-founder and former CEO of TripAdvisor has a new venture. Steve Koffer left the Needham-based company last year. The Boston Globe reports he's decided to start a software company devoted to collecting more money for charities. His startup, Give Freely, has developed a web browser extension that allows users to send money to their favorite charity when they shop online. Shoppers don't pay any extra. The money comes from commissions retailers normally pay to websites that send shoppers their way. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Lizzie, Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this Ghost Story Meets Rock Concert musical, now through November 5th. More at TheUmbrellaArts.org. Mostly cloudy skies tonight with temps in the upper 50s. Gorgeous and sunny tomorrow with a high around 80. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI. Dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. A federal judge has ordered Georgia to redraw its district lines for Congress and the state legislature before the 2024 election. The court ruled that Georgia's current political maps illegally dilute the power of black voters. Here to explain this is Sam Greenglass, reporter at WABE in Atlanta. Hi, Sam. Hey, Juana. So, Sam, tell us what else did this ruling say? Well, Juana, I have to admit, I am still working through this 516-page ruling by U.S. District Judge Steve Jones. But here's the top line. The judge agreed that Georgia has made big strides toward equality in voting since the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965. But he concluded that even today, Georgia's political process is not equally open for everyone. The VRA prohibits racial discrimination in voting practices, and Jones ruled that Georgia's maps did discriminate against black voters. Just to put a bit of a finer point on this, when we say that we're talking about maps that dilute the power of black voters, what does that mean in practice? 
Well, it was black voters that fueled Georgia's population boom last decade. But when the Republican-led legislature drew new maps after the 2020 census, black voters, the judge found, were in some places packed together, in other places split apart. And that resulted in fewer districts where black voters could elect candidates of their choice. The state argued their maps did not discriminate by race. They were simply drawn to help Republicans, which is allowed in Georgia. The judge disagreed. And one clear example is in Metro Atlanta, which is growing, becoming more diverse. But the maps ended up creating a district that was whiter and friendlier to Republicans. So the judge says these maps have to be redrawn. What happens next? The state legislature now has until December 8th to approve new maps. They have to add one majority black congressional district in Metro Atlanta and seven more majority black state House and Senate seats. And because most black voters in Georgia support Democrats, new maps would likely mean Democrats are going to net some seats. The state is expected to appeal, but Republican Governor Brian Kemp has already called a special session after Thanksgiving, so mapmakers can literally go back to the drawing board. Okay, and Sam, I mean, there have been a number of headlines lately having to do with redistricting. Can you just help us put this ruling today from Georgia in some broader context? Yeah, Georgia is one of several states where maps have been challenged, lots of them in the South. This is the first redistricting cycle where the U.S. Department of Justice does not have to pre-clear voting changes in places with histories of racial discrimination, like Georgia and also Alabama. You might remember there was all this legal back and forth over Alabama's map, which ended up with the U.S. Supreme Court agreeing it had to be redrawn. That set off a flurry of decisions to redraw maps in other states and want to take all this together and there could be big consequences for who controls state legislatures and the U.S. House of Representatives, which we know from this week is very narrowly divided. Indeed. That is WABE's Sam Greenglass. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Juana. In many states like California, Colorado, and Louisiana, there's been a steep rise in the cost of homeowners' insurance. It's especially staggering in Florida, a state that already has the highest insurance costs in the country. Many Floridians have seen insurance premiums go up by more than 40 percent this year. And despite efforts by lawmakers to stabilize the market, costs are likely to keep rising. NPR's Greg Allen reports. Greg Weiss lives in an older neighborhood in West Palm Beach. His home and many others are nearly a century old. It's a great place to live, he says, except when it comes to buying homeowner's insurance. Two years ago, he was shocked at a letter he received. The windstorm portion of our insurance went from about $10,000 a year, which is not cheap, but okay. But it doubled and went up to $20,000. He called his insurance agent and got some surprising advice. She said, honestly, my recommendation is if you can pay off your mortgage and self-insure yourself, you know, I have a lot of clients that that's what they're doing and and because we, I don't see any way to help you. Weiss, who's currently serving as Palm Beach County's mayor, says he and his wife paid off their mortgage and dropped their insurance. And he knows others who are doing the same. But for homeowners who have mortgages and are required to carry insurance, there's little recourse except to cover the steep increases. There are reports that because of the high insurance costs, some are being forced to leave the state. Officials have heard their complaints. 
Here's Florida's insurance commissioner, Michael Jaworski. Everyone is in this together. It is it is a very difficult time for Florida homeowners. The cost of homeowners insurance in Florida is more than three and a half times the national average. And over the last three years, premiums have skyrocketed. There are lots of reasons, among them, the three hurricanes that hit the state in the last two years. But policymakers and the insurance industry say excessive litigation has played a major role in driving up prices. Jaworski says reforms passed by lawmakers last year and signed by the governor have begun to limit lawsuits. After years of trying to get it done, the governor and others finally pushed it through, and it should improve the situation over time. State Senator Geraldine Thompson says nearly a year later, Homeowners in her Orlando district are still waiting. We find now that the litigation has gone down, it has dropped, but the premiums have not dropped. Another inexorable factor driving up insurance costs is climate change. Benjamin Keyes, a professor of real estate at the University of Pennsylvania, says sophisticated modeling by big reinsurance companies has led the industry to take a hard look at the risk in places like Florida, which is struggling with sea level rise, as well as more dangerous storms. So what we have is a a real changing landscape in insurance markets, a recognition that risks have increased in recent years, disasters are occurring with more frequency and severity than previously forecast. The rising cost of construction, up nearly 40% over the last five years, is also driving up premiums. In Florida's challenging market, seven insurance companies became insolvent over the last year. But with the recent legal reforms, Mark Friedlander with the Insurance Information Institute believes the market may be stabilizing. Companies that were not writing business are opening up again and starting to write more risk. And companies are starting to see some positive lights at the end of the tunnel. Five new insurance companies have been approved to begin writing policies in Florida. Even so, Friedlander says, homeowners shouldn't look for relief anytime soon. It's a similar outlook in California, Louisiana, and many other states seeing double-digit increases in the cost of insurance. Real estate professor Benjamin Keyes says if private insurers keep backing away from what they see as high-risk markets, the federal government may be asked to step in. Will we see a national wind insurance program? Will we see a national wildfire insurance program? I think those Uh, are possibilities. There is a precedent. More than 50 years ago, because private insurance wasn't available, the federal government created the National Flood Insurance Program. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. PR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, where interior designers can help you rethink your living room or family room during their annual upholstery event through October. CircleFurniture.com. And Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. 
I'm Vipa Fernandez. With the crisis in Israel and Gaza, we'll hear from our go-to book expert, Tracy Thomas, about the books she's reading to get more context. I've been looking to the people who have dedicated their lives and their lives' work to explaining this to the rest of us. That's next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Maine, a combination of fear and grief has gripped the town of Lewiston as the manhunt continues for the suspect in a mass shooting last night that left at least 18 people dead and 13 injured. Officials say the shootings happened in two locations, a bowling alley and a bar in Maine. Here's Governor Janet Mills speaking to reporters earlier today. This city did not deserve this terrible assault on its citizens, on its peace of mind, on its sense of security. No city does. No state. No people. Police identified the suspect as 40-year-old Robert Card, a firearms expert and Army reservist. He was taken by police for a mental evaluation back in July. After he was acting erratically during training, Card remains at large. The Israeli military launched a brief raid into the Gaza Strip today, killing the deputy head of Hamas intelligence. As NPR's Peter Kenyon tells us, the Israeli military is clearing the battlefield for an expected ground invasion. Israeli military spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht says during Wednesday night's raid into the Gaza Strip, they targeted and killed the deputy head of Hamas intelligence, Shadi Baroud. The military says Baroud teamed up with other militants to plan previous deadly attacks, including, quote, numerous terror attacks against Israeli civilians when he was a battalion commander in Han Yunus. Hecht said planning for a ground operation continues at the higher echelons of the government and military, and he offered no notion of when such an operation might start. He acknowledged that the presence of so many hostages makes any operation far more complicated. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street with a steep drop in the tech sector after some big companies expressed uncertainty about the global economy and their future profits. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Massachusetts congressional delegation is weighing in on the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Congressman Seth Moulton says too many families are bonded by the horrors of losing someone to a senseless act of violence. He says we need answers on how the system, quote, failed so tragically. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says it's long overdue that we treat gun violence like the public health crisis that it is. The head of the Massachusetts-based advocacy group Stop Handgun Violence says yesterday's mass shooting in Maine does not surprise him. John Rosenthal says Maine has weapon and ammunition regulations when it comes to hunting animals, but its overall gun laws are lacking. When you want to hunt humans, like this guy did yesterday and may continue to do today and tomorrow unless they catch him, no license and no limit on the number of rounds. And that is going on in roughly 32 states across the country. Rosenthal says if Maine had gun laws like Massachusetts does, it could have prevented the shooter's access to the weapon used yesterday. The annual report summing up the state's revenue and spending will likely be late. The state comptroller's office says that's due to delays on Beacon Hill. The financial report is due at the end of the month, but it can only be completed after the governor signs a budget document closing the fiscal year. Lawmakers have yet to move on the supplemental budget submitted in September.
The Environmental Protection Agency has awarded a half million dollars to improve stormwater management along the Nashua River in Fitchburg. The funding was announced by several members of the state's congressional delegation today. The project will be led by the Nashua River Watershed Council. The money will be used to create nature-based solutions such as buffer zones, rain gardens, and permeable pavement to try to slow stormwater runoff and combined sewer overflows into the river. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. In sports, the Bruins look to make it seven wins in a row to start the season as they face the Anaheim Ducks at the Garden tonight. And tonight will be mostly cloudy in the upper 50s. Then we should see lots of sunshine tomorrow with temps approaching 80 degrees. Saturday, sunny and around 80 once again. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The Hamas attack against Israel on October 7th was widely viewed as a failure of the country's much-vaunted security network. Many blame Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for that. NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Jerusalem on the impact that the crisis will have on Netanyahu's reputation and legacy. For the nearly 16 years that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been in power, he's tried to carry the mantle of Mr. Security. Under his watch, Israel built what was supposed to be the region's most powerful military and sophisticated intelligence apparatus. That veneer of security shattered when Hamas militants launched the multi-prong attack on the country, leaving 1,400 dead and Netanyahu's reputation dangling by a thread. I don't think that Netanyahu will be able to survive this crisis. Mazal Mualam is an Israeli political analyst and the author of Cracking the Netanyahu Code. She says Netanyahu is a wily politician who has survived many crises over his career. But the Hamas attacks were seen as the biggest security breach since the Yom Kippur War in 1973. The failure of Netanyahu is huge precisely because of the image he built all of his political career as the great defender of Israel's security. Days after the attack, the polls were unforgiving, says Dalia Scheindlin, a Tel Aviv-based pollster and political analyst. Vast majorities of the public blame the government, view this as a leadership debacle, hold the government responsible for creating the conditions that led to the collapse of defense systems of the South. And Netanyahu's ratings as, you know, suitable to be prime minister have really plunged. Even in the months before the Hamas attacks, Netanyahu's leadership was marked with controversies. He's on trial facing corruption charges, which he denies. He formed a government with hard-right nationalists, tried to weaken Israeli Supreme Court, and pushed for more settlements in the West Bank. 
He was seen as divisive, but some Israelis don't think it's time for a change. I think this is the right leader in the moment. I don't know somebody better than him. We have no choice now. The reality is he's the prime minister and he have to go to do his job. That's 70-year-old Abraham Balgig and a 60-year-old lawyer named Ariel Elbaum. Netanyahu's fate as prime minister could rest on how he handles the aftermath of the attacks. And that means going to war, says Diana Butu, an attorney and author who has advised Palestinian negotiators in past peace talks. He knows his political survival at this point depends on how much he flattens Gaza. And I, I mean, I, I hate to be so crude, but this is the what this is the equation. And that's why his government is pushing so hard for it. And that war could buy Netanyahu some time, says Tal Schneider, a political columnist with the Times of Israel. We definitely need to focus right now on stopping the rockets, bringing home the abducted, and doing everything we can to just get rid of this uh, terror regime. And this is, this is the main focus. If you ask me on priorities, having Netanyahu stepping aside may be next in line, but not, not today. Danny Danone, a former Israeli ambassador to the UN, says Netanyahu has had many successes while in office, such as the Abraham Accords, which normalized relations between Israel and some Gulf nations. But that Netanyahu's political fortunes may depend largely on how well he handles a ground incursion into Gaza. He did a lot of great things for the nation, and everything else would not be remembered if we will not be victorious on, on this war. So he has a lot on his shoulders. Danone says it's more than pulverizing Hamas and Gaza. Netanyahu will have to rebuild the country's trust in government. Uh, as of now, you know, the people in Israel, they, they feel that uh, we are vulnerable, that uh, we are under attack. And I think we, with the leadership, we will have to restore uh, the feeling of security uh, among Israelis. Otherwise, for all his years in power, Netanyahu could be remembered for what happened October 7th. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Jerusalem. Let's go to the resort city of Acapulco, Mexico, where more than 36 hours after a monster hurricane made direct impact, little help has arrived. The storm caused widespread devastation and killed at least 27 people. Much of the city of nearly a million people is without electricity and communication is spotty. NPR's Ader Peralta is in Acapulco and joins us now via satellite. Hi, Ader. Hey, Juan. So, Ader, tell us what you're seeing there. What are people telling you? I mean, look, this is horrific uh, and apocalyptic. Uh, right now, I am on what used to be the main tourist drag. It's right on the bay, and almost every building here has suffered some damage. Uh, those Category 5 wind, winds stripped some of the high-rises here to bare concrete. And the streets are just full of people. They're in cars. They're walking. They're in a kind of day trying to survive. Uh, and as we've been walking around, there's also a lot of looting happening. Uh, there are people who are, of course, uh, stealing big screen TVs and furniture, but I also met a young man who had been going from pharmacy to pharmacy looking for medicine for his sick aunt. Uh, I also met a woman who sent her young son into the supermarket to get some ice and uh, some food. And she told me how embarrassing that this awful situation had made them thieves. Uh, 
What's more, she said, she has money, but none of the stores are open. Hmm. The people there that you're talking to, are they getting any help from the Mexican government? Food, water, medical supplies, anything? We have seen very little help here. Um, we have seen the military trying to clear some of the streets, and there are a lot of workers for the electricity company here, uh, but we haven't seen a lot of other presence. Uh, earlier, we were at one of the neighborhoods on the outskirts of Acapulco, uh, of Acapulco, and it's devastating. Every house we walked into was covered in mud. Residents said that at the peak of the storm, they were walking in chest-high water, and no one, no one, not the federal government, not the state government, has brought them even a bottle of water. Ana Laura Dominguez and Juvita Abraham said they had nothing. Let's listen. And at the end there, Dominguez says, at least we're alive. Uh, some neighbors just up the street drowned. Oh, my goodness. Ader, just help us understand for people who cannot see what you are seeing. What does it look like there? What kind of damage have you seen? I mean, it's stunning. The destruction is everywhere. Blown off roofs, uh, roofs, whole facades of buildings look like uh, they've been peeled off. Uh, But what is truly heartbreaking is that the regular people uh, who have lost everything uh, that they have built for decades. Uh, One older lady that I met earlier today couldn't stop crying. Uh, She had been trying to get the mud out of her house with a broom, um, but she couldn't make any progress. And she said, I'm I'm so tired. And then um, when she showed me her washing machine, she broke down. She had bought it just uh, a few days ago, and she has no idea how she's going to rebuild. NPR's Ader Peralta on the ground in Acapulco, Mexico. Ader, thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been almost two decades since director Alexander Payne and his star Paul Giamatti drank their way through Santa Barbara wine country. That was in their Oscar-nominated comedy, Sideways. Their new movie, The Holdovers, has Giamatti playing a grouchy prep school teacher who also does a bit of drinking. Critic Bogmodello says he won't be surprised if Oscar comes calling once again. You know those movies about inspirational teachers? Paul Giamatti's Mr. Hunnam is kind of going for the opposite effect. We meet him in 1970, spreading Christmas cheer by returning graded exams as parents wait in Barton Academy's courtyard to spirit their sons away on break. Lots of D-minuses and F-pluses. I can tell by your faces that many of you are shocked at the outcome. I, on the other hand, am not, because I have had the misfortune of teaching you this semester... And I witness firsthand your glazed, uncomprehending expressions. Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. No, it's... Uh, I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can. I'm supposed to go to Cornell. Unlikely. Hunnam's got just one friend at Barton, the cafeteria manager, played by Divine Joy Randolph, who will be spending her first Christmas since the death of her son cooking for the holdover boys who don't have anywhere to go for the holidays. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? It's his punishment for failing a legacy student the previous semester and creating problems for the headmaster. Initially, there are several boys in his care, but it eventually comes down to just Angus Tully, his best 
best student, played by sad-eyed newcomer Dominic Sessa. He's a bratty, privileged kid who knows how to push all of Hunnam's buttons. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. He's been kicked out of several schools already, and Hunnam, sipping Jim Beam and fuming, bristles at the entitlement Angus clearly takes for granted. You think I want to be babysitting you? No, I was praying your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a flying saucer. My father's dead. That leaves Mary to be the adult in the room. You don't tell a boy that's been left behind at Christmas that nobody wants him? What's wrong with you? Aware of the arc this sort of story usually takes, the director heads off in other directions. Normally, this exchange, for instance. I don't think I've ever had a real family Christmas like this before. Thank you, Mary. You're welcome. Would lead to a thaw. Here it leads to an argument, and another and another, with student and teacher baiting each other, even at moments when they seem to be reaching common ground. Okay. All right, now your turn. Go ahead. Tell me something about me. Something negative. Something negative about you? Sure. Just one thing. Just one. Director Alexander Payne hasn't just made a movie set in the 1970s, he's done his best to make a 1970s movie. A longtime advocate for film preservation, he begins with vintage film company logos and uses filters to make the images look like they were shot on celluloid back then. His story is concerned with social issues, class, race, entitlement, and centered on character, outcasts of the sort that used to grace films like Harold and Maud. I find the world a bitter and complicated place, and it seems to feel the same way about me. I think you and I have this in common. The result is a film that honors folks who've all but given up on themselves at what's supposed to be the happiest time of year, which is to say it's a classic Christmas movie narrative. To those who say they don't make them like they used to, the holdovers holds over the way they used to. I'm Bob Mandela. Let me sleep in slumber of tomorrow There's nowhere we need to be that will not be You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for spending the beginning of your evening with WBUR. Coming up around 6 o'clock tonight, we're expecting officials in Maine to provide an update on the mass shootings in Lewiston and the search for the suspect. We'll bring you that press conference live and we'll follow it with analysis tonight around 6 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR and the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. Volante Farms in Needham, with daily lunch specials highlighting homegrown produce. Full-service deli and cafe with sandwiches and salads. Hours at volantefarms.com. And The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, playing November 10th through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. Huntingtontheater.org. In sports, the Bruins are back home tonight after a four-game road trip. They look to remain unbeaten, extending a six-game winning streak when they host the Anaheim Ducks at TD Garden. Puck drops at 7. We'll have mostly cloudy skies tonight. Lows will be in the upper 50s. Tomorrow will be much like today was a beautiful late October day. It'll be about 80 degrees with lots of sunshine. The first half of the weekend looks picture perfect. Saturday will be sunny with a high around 80 again. And then Sunday, it looks like some rain will move in by afternoon and we'll have temps in the mid 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners. 
and by the Boston Globe, with an all-documentary film festival returning in theaters and online now through Sunday. The ninth annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversations with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets and info available at globe.com slash filmfest. Considered from NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. In Venezuela, Maria Karina Machado easily won the opposition's presidential primary on Sunday. That should set her off for a face-off against Nicolas Maduro, Venezuela's autocratic leader, in next year's presidential election. However, the Maduro regime has disqualified Machado from running. Now, in an effort to promote a free election, the U.S. government is offering Maduro a deal. Reporter John Otis explains. Maria Corina Machado, a former right-wing legislator, overwhelmed nine other candidates in Sunday's opposition primary. In a speech, she called her triumph the beginning of the end of Maduro's presidency and vowed to crush him in next year's election. The Maduro regime insists Machado cannot run for president. That's because in June, she was barred from holding public office for 15 years, even though there was no legal basis for that decision. Yet Machado's fortunes have been bolstered by her landslide primary win and by a push from Washington. We will now proceed with the signing of the two partial agreements. The first breakthrough came last week at this ceremony in Barbados, where envoys for Maduro and Venezuela's opposition laid out new ground rules to make next year's election at least partially free and fair. The deal includes a process for lifting the bans on presidential candidates. Thank you. Muchas gracias. The day after the agreement was signed, the Biden administration lifted for six months most of the sanctions put in place in 2019 against Venezuela's vital oil industry. Those sanctions magnified what was already Venezuela's worst economic crisis in history. Under the sanctions, Venezuela had to sell its oil on the black market at steep discounts. But now it can once again export oil to the U.S. at market prices, says Francisco Monaldi, an energy analyst at Rice University in Houston. That's what made it irresistible, I think, for Maduro to accept uh, this deal. He's going to benefit starting tomorrow. Monalde says the deal could nearly double Venezuela's oil income over the next year. Maduro, who has dismal job approval ratings, badly needs that cash to jumpstart the economy as he seeks re-election, says Phil Gunson, who's based in Caracas for the International Crisis Group. Maduro has the problem that the economy of Venezuela is in very bad shape, so he needs to produce a fairly rapid turnaround. But the regime is already backing off from the democratic commitments it made in Barbados. Que no es lo que está contenido. In a speech, Jorge Rodriguez, Maduro's envoy to the Barbados talks, insisted that there is no agreement to lift the bans on presidential candidates. Such hedging by the regime is why the easing of U.S. sanctions is temporary and why oil sanctions could quickly be reimposed. So says Juan González, a top Biden administration envoy for Latin America, speaking here with America's Quarterly. After November, if they've not followed through, we're going we're gonna to take steps to reverse what is happening. 
In the end, Maduro may prefer sanctions to facing the highly popular Machado at the ballot box. Gunson points out that if Maduro loses and leaves office, he and other regime figures could face prosecution for human rights abuses and drug trafficking. Maduro and the people around him have given no indication that they have at any point contemplated giving up power. They don't intend to do that. Hoy recibí un mandato. But in the wake of her primary win on Sunday, an upbeat Machado insisted that she will be on next year's presidential ballot. She said, we are going to overcome all of these obstacles. For NPR News, I'm John Otis. The world's most visited theme park has become, perhaps by accident, one of the most important links in a wildlife corridor spanning the length of Florida. As Steve Newborn of WUSF reports, Disney is now protecting land from the sprawl it sparked a half century ago. In the woods next to Disney's Magic Kingdom, Rachel Smith hears a woodpecker. Smith manages conservation programs at Walt Disney World. Even in these woods, you can hear the hustle and bustle of the nearby park as Smith points out a tortoise nesting area. A lot of these habitats serve as important long-term sites for our resident gopher tortoises that live here on property. A lot of Disney property is actually wild green space with visits from migrating Florida panthers and black bears, including one that shut down parts of the park in September when it was spotted in a tree. Zach Kazan is a conservation manager with Disney. He says this occasional wildlife sighting blends with the theme park experience. We want our guests as they go over on the Skyliner and they look down as they're going from resort to resort or park to park to feel the wilderness that surrounds them. And you can look down and see the headwaters of the Everglades that are right here on property and see where it begins. He says from the very beginning of the attraction in the 1960s, Walt Disney had a vision of what it would look like. And wildlife was a big part of who he saw himself as a a human and the impact he could have on the world. And he hand drew what Walt Disney World could look like. And it included a spine that went from north to south and east to west and allowed for wildlife to live in harmony with humans in this space. These green spines mean the happiest place on Earth is actually one of the only places left in this part of Florida that allows wildlife to migrate from the Everglades north to Orlando to the Green Swamp near Tampa. These patches of preserved areas are what members of the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation want to protect across the state. Jason Lauritsen is with the foundation. He says the Disney corridor is critical because of continued rampant development that started in Central Florida when Disney came to town. 50 years ago, there were lots of different ways for wildlife to go back and forth. Now we're down to one. There's really one functional corridor. And preserving it is one of the top priorities of the foundation. Beyond Disney, it's encouraging other landowners to protect wilderness areas on their properties. Mallory Likes Dimmit is the group's executive director. She hopes Disney will preserve this wild space forever. And that's what we need everywhere in the corridor is to have people think beyond their immediate property boundaries and how we can be working together across those boundaries to sustain these connections that they'll last in perpetuity. The Corridor Foundation calls this stretch the last green thread. That's because it's desperately needed for Florida wildlife to thrive. For NPR News, I'm Steve Newborn in Tampa.
Halloween is only a few days away, and many of us, including me, may not even have costumes yet, but never fear. On the next All Things Considered, we'll have do-it-yourself advice for last-minute costumes. We will even tell you how to make a costume, get this, from a plastic garbage bag. Listen tomorrow on All Things Considered from NPR News. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Stay with us for the latest update out of Lewiston, Maine, on the mass shooting last night. We will take that live when it happens, when officials bring us a press conference in a little while. Temps will dip to the upper 50s tonight under mostly cloudy skies, around 80 degrees tomorrow and mostly sunny. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Authorities in Lewiston, Maine, will give an update shortly on the search for the suspect in last night's mass shooting that left 18 people dead and more than a dozen injured. We'll bring it to you when it happens. It's Thursday, October 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Hunger in America. A new report says 17 million people or households struggled to put food on the table. Ahead on Marketplace, under the bipartisan infrastructure law, the federal government expanded its Buy American requirements for federal projects. Broadband equipment, water and wastewater uh, treatment equipment, all of these are products where we've seen uh, Buy American rules ratcheted up. But getting a hold of American-made materials has been a challenge. It's 6.01. News headlines are first.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden met with the new House Speaker at the White House today. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the White House invited Representative Mike Johnson to discuss the president's request for more aid for Israel and Ukraine. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Speaker Johnson joined a meeting with other congressional leaders on President Biden's request for almost $106 billion for national security priorities, including Ukraine and Israel aid. We invited him today, it's actually happening right now, to a bipartisan uh, briefing with leadership and relevant uh, committee chairs and ranking members. The president met with Johnson, along with Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, before the briefing. Jean-Pierre added that the president would work with the new House Speaker in good faith, but the Biden campaign delivered a different kind of message, painting Mike Johnson as a foot soldier for former President Donald Trump, who, according to the campaign, will try to ban abortion and deny free elections. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. The State Department says it is trying to negotiate a way out of Gaza for hundreds of Palestinian Americans trapped there amid heavy Israeli bombardment, but officials call it tricky diplomacy, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The State Department has at times sent messages to Americans in Gaza telling them that the Rafah border crossing might be open, and officials say they hope that will be true in the coming days. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the problem is that there's no one on the Gaza side of the border. To- This is 90.9 WBUR. We're going to interrupt all things considered now to bring you live to the latest update from Lewiston, Maine, about the mass shooting that killed 18 people and injured 13 last night. The press conference with the Lewiston Police Chief David St. Pierre, U.S. Senator Susan Collins, and Congressman Jared Golden is underway. I also, at midnight, talked to Governor Mills, who has been a pillar of strength for our state. Tom Perez, who is the special advisor to the president throughout the night, texted me back and forth, what you need? And I would tell him based on conversations that I had as he coordinated the federal response. This morning, Secretary of Homeland Security has called and offered help from his department. The Attorney General also called, along with Maine's own U.S. Attorney, to offer their help. Right before I came into this building, I had a call from the Deputy Director of the FBI, who told me that there are 80 FBI agents on site participating in the search for the killer. 80. That doesn't include other people from the marshal's office, from the ATF, the DEA, and the Department of Homeland Security, and the Coast Guard. This has been a concerted effort at the state, local, and federal level. And everyone is determined to bring the killer to justice. To the families of those who have been injured or killed, I know that no words can fully ease the shock, the pain, and the justifiable anger that you are feeling. My hope is that you will feel 
the solace and strength in knowing that you are in the hearts of the people of Maine and of people throughout our nation. Thank you. I'd now like to introduce the Congressman Jared Golden, who represents this area of Maine. You've been listening to a news conference happening at Lewiston City Hall. That was Maine Senator Susan Collins talking about uh, the response from the federal government. Uh, Homeland Security officials calling her, uh, also indicating that there are 80 FBI agents assisting in the search, joining the other state and local and municipal. 18 people are dead and 13 injured, some of them critically. The primary suspect, Robert Card, is still on the run. There's a massive manhunt underway and local residents are sheltering in place. Joining us now with the latest details is NPR's Brian Mann, who is in Lewiston. Hi, Brian. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what do we know as of now about what exactly happened last night? The details are still not complete, but it appears that just before 7 p.m. last night, shooting started at a bowling alley here. A few minutes later, there were reports to police of a second shooting at a bar and grill nearby in Lewiston. That sparked this huge response by police and also by medical crews at local hospitals. We heard today from Dr. John Alexander, who's at Maine Central Healthcare. We had some heroic efforts by our team members uh, last night, uh, continuing in today. One of the challenges with identifying patients early on was the speed with which our teams needed to act. And things were really chaotic. Alexander said grievously wounded patients were coming in every three to four minutes. Yeah. And again, some remain in critical condition today. Okay. And meanwhile, this manhunt, it, it continues, right? What's the situation on that front? Yeah, this is really a community that's just locked down tight. There's an expanding shelter-in-place order because Robert Card has not been caught. Officials here say people should consider him armed and very dangerous. And right now they just have no idea where he is. You know, Elsa, I've been out in the field today where frantic searches are underway with helicopters and ground teams, and I've seen crews dozens of miles apart. Meanwhile, people are hunkered down, and, and they tell me they're scared. I can imagine so. I understand that you met two women today who've been grieving with their community in a really personal way. Can you talk about what they told you? Yeah, this was hard. I met Kelly Mitchell and Kathy Nelson this morning while they were still searching for their nephew, a guy named Joshua Seal, who'd gone missing after this attack. They knew he was at one of the locations with friends when the gunman opened fire, and they were trying to help their sister search. And we're just trying to help her find him. She can't She's find him. She's been to the hospitals. She's been up all night trying to find him in the hospitals. She can't find him. But Elsa, the family reached out to me a short time ago today to say they've been notified by state police that Joshua Seal died in the attack. He is among mm -hmm. those who did not survive. He was a hearing impaired man who worked as a sign language interpreter and his wife Elizabeth posted on Facebook a short time ago that he was a great father and her best friend. God. Well, I know that the governor there, Janet Mills, was also present today. What did she have to say? Well, she's clearly exhausted. She spoke about this terrible loss, this terrible violent loss that another American community has experienced here. All Maine people are sharing in the sorrow of the families who lost loved ones last night. Normal people who were killed or injured while unwinding from a day of work. I know that the people of Lewiston are enduring immeasurable pain. I wish I could take that pain off your hearts, off your shoulders, but I promise you this, 
we will all help you carry that grief. And ELSA President Biden has ordered flags across the country flown at half staff. That is NPR's Brian Mann in Lewiston, Maine. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Elsa. Among the people who Hamas took as hostages during the attacks of October 7th is a 79-year-old man named Haim Perry. He's a metal worker and sculptor, a man who helped take people to and from Gaza to receive better medical care in Israel, a father, a grandfather, and a husband who confronted a militant who entered his house, buying his wife precious time. So my father just pushed him away with his hands. He was unarmed. And he scared him away for a few minutes, but that enabled my mother to to hide just one or two meters away. And this is how she was saved. That's one of his children, his daughter, Noam Perry. She lives in Tel Aviv now, but she was born and raised in the Israeli kibbutz of Near Oz, a small village where everybody knew everyone else. It, it was a very peaceful, green place with a lot of fields around. I know most of these people, and I regard them as my friends. Noam says of the 350 or so people in Niraz, about a quarter were killed or taken hostage on October 7th. According to Israeli officials, Hamas took about 220 hostages throughout Israel and killed over 1,400 people. In response, Israel continues to send airstrikes into Gaza, where over 7,000 people have been killed. One thing I think we can all agree on, wherever we stand on the political spectrum, is that hostages should not be taken and hostages must be unconditionally and immediately released. Erwin Kotler is chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights and a longtime Canadian government official. He and Noam Perry are in Washington to make the case that freeing hostages should be the top priority. They came to NPR headquarters earlier today, and I asked how the meetings have gone so far. Well, the meetings have been very both important on the one hand, uh, because the people with whom we've been meeting are in a position to take action. And as we meet now, a resolution has now been adopted in the House. There will be another one that has now been proposed that will be adopted in the Senate. These will be model resolutions that other countries can also take up, and we are establishing an interparliamentary coalition for that purpose. We also believe that the U.S. can lead this international coalition, and we've been in these meetings reminding uh, the officials of the importance of the International Committee of the Red Cross also being involved uh, much more than they have been up to now in terms of delivery of humanitarian assistance and participating in, in the rescue. On a personal note, I can add that we have gotten tremendous support from all people we've met on all sides. And uh, it's not only heartwarming, it's also, I think, reinforces how, how critical the United States in the leading role of this international coalition. Uh, there are 40 nationalities involved of the hostages, and United States is well positioned to lead both morally and effective acts to to release those hostages uh, immediately. Noam, how's your mom doing? She's devoted to help the survivors of Neuros to cope and get everything that they need. So she's devoted to this 
uh, amazing work since. Do you have any sense, any indication of how your father is doing, if he's well, if what's happened to him? Until two days ago, we knew nothing, just that he was alive when he left the house with the terrorists. But since the release of the two hostages from Neuroz uh, two days ago, we could get through them uh, news about him. So one of them told her son that they were together and that my father is okay, <sighs> he's alive. And this creates for us even more urgency to act now and make sure he and the other people that would not survive in captivity for long get released. I'm glad to hear that he is alive. It has to be some comforting news to hear. It creates a lot of hope. I want to ask you both, and Noam, I'll start with you here, about Israel's military response so far. What what do you think of it? I'm not an expert to analyze military maneuvers. Uh, the only thing I, I know is that the hostages should be number one priority. Releasing all hostages should be the first priority of all parties involved. Erwin, I want to ask you the same question. I mean, you are someone who has worked in issues of justice and human rights for decades. How do you feel about the human toll of Israel's airstrikes on Gaza as they continue? Well, our whole approach is that we're focusing on the release of the hostages. We see this as a standalone issue. The hostage issue is a, a matter of priority on our domestic and foreign policy agenda as a matter of principle and policy. Wherever you stand on the political spectrum, this is of the highest order, as I mentioned, on a humanitarian level, moral level, legal level, international level. Is there anything that can be learned by the way that hostage negotiations have happened so far that could apply to getting more people out soon? Well, I I, I think what is needed is for people to look at this as an issue around which we all can agree is one of unconditional and immediate mandated requirements for the release. And we can then get on to all other issues and all other questions. And if we release the hostages, we'll be able to pave the way for maybe moving forward on other uh, political and legal considerations that you've raised. And I want, if I can, also personally call all religious leaders here in the United States and worldwide to stand and call for the release of those hostages. This is a crime against any religion. And we saw brave Islamic leadership calling in the first few days, condemning Hamas and calling for the release of all hostages. And we want to see religious leaders leaders from all religions stand together and say, this is a humanitarian issue, this is a crime against any religion, and to call Hamas clearly to end this and release all hostages. We've been speaking with Noam Perry. Her father, Haim Perry, is among those who were taken hostage by Hamas. And Erwin Kotler, chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. Thanks to both of you and Noam. Our thoughts are with you and your family, and we hope you and your father are reunited soon. Thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
and this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up at 6.30, the Dallas Fed has reported that firms have been labor hoarding or holding on to workers they would normally let go. Why are firms doing this and what does it mean for the labor economy? That's ahead on Marketplace. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to wbur.org. On Wall Street, it was a down day all around. The Dow fell three-quarters of a percent, or 251 points. The S&P dropped 1.2 percent. NASDAQ dipped one and three-quarters percent. In local business news, former Boston Bruins captain Patrice Bergeron has a new gig. The Boston Business Journal reports the retired NHL star will be the new pitch man for Sal's Pizza. He's reportedly been filming a commercial campaign with Sal Lupoli Jr., son of the pizza's company's CEO. The journal reports the new ad campaign is set to begin airing later this fall. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Chestnut Hill School, inspiring preschoolers through grade 6 to grow today, transform tomorrow. Open house October 29th. Visit tchs.org. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Taking a look at the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight and in the upper 50s. We'll see lots of sunshine tomorrow with temps approaching 80. Saturday, sunny again and around 80 degrees. Clouds will move in for Sunday, along with some rain by afternoon. Sunday's high will be in the mid-50s. Right now, it is 67 degrees in Boston with mostly cloudy skies. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from EasyCater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. We have watched as communities across the American South have removed Confederate monuments from public spaces in recent years. Some have gone to museums, others are locked away in storage. But one particularly controversial statue from Charlottesville, Virginia, is on a different journey to be completely transformed into something new. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. A massive bronze sculpture of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in uniform, astride his horse traveler, stood in a downtown Charlottesville park for nearly a century. It was at the center of a deadly white nationalist rally in 2017 when neo-Nazis and white supremacists tried to stop the city's plans to remove the statue. It finally came down in 2021. Charlottesville prevailed in a prolonged legal battle with the Sons of Confederate Veterans and other groups and donated the Lee statue to a coalition that proposed to melt it down and create a more inclusive public art installation. We want to transform 
something that has been toxic uh, in the Charlottesville community. Jelaine Schmidt is a religious studies professor at the University of Virginia and one of the project's organizers. People are willing to die for symbols, and as we saw in Charlottesville, they're willing to kill for them, too. Lawsuits to stop the project failed, and last weekend, organizers moved forward with great secrecy to disassemble and melt down the Lee Monument. The work is being done at an out-of-state foundry. NPR agreed not to reveal its location or the identity of the workers because they fear repercussions. They use a torch to score the head of the statue in the pattern of a death mask. Lee's face falls to the floor. The symbolism is poignant for Andrea Douglas. She directs the Jefferson School African American Cultural Center in Charlottesville, which is leading the project. The act of myth-making that has occurred around Robert E. Lee, removing his face is emblematic of the kind of removal of that kind of myth. The project is called Swords into Plowshares, taken from a Bible verse in the book of Isaiah. A furnace is set up in a side yard of the foundry using propane and forced air to top 2,000 degrees. Workers feed pieces of the verdigris statue, including General Lee's saber, into a large vessel inside the furnace called a crucible. We are turning swords into something else. You know, that saber is the object of violence, and it was the object of power, it's the object of conquest. Just after nightfall, Foundry workers remove the crucible, glowing a bright red-orange, and pour the steaming molten bronze into molds. Jelaine Schmidt says the most exciting part for her is seeing the new ingots created. Because that's about going forward. That's, you know, oh, here they are now. They're flipping it out. See here? You know, turn that upside down and it's like a banana bread pan, you know, or a meatloaf or something. You got to <laughs> knock it out of there. Oh, there it is. For security reasons few people were invited to watch, among them is Ashley Woodard Henderson, who feels the weight of what she's witnessing. Oh my gosh, I mean, as like a proud black Appalachian who is born and raised in the South, um, I know this to be more than just a symbolic moment. Henderson is co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Tennessee, which has long been an incubator for labor and civil rights activists. She sees opportunity in this moment. I'm most excited about what, what it looks like to repair, what reparations looks like for folks in Charlottesville, what it looks like to tell this new story. I'm, I'm hyped. I feel excited. I think this is a joyful occasion in a really dire strait of political nastiness that we've been surviving. For Methodist minister Isaac Collins, the deadly white nationalist violence in Charlottesville was a turning point for the nation and says it's surreal to see the focal point of that episode disassembled. You know, I was thinking Humpty Dumpty couldn't be put back together again. <laughs> I was like, it's over, baby. This thing is never going back up. We still have a lot of work to do, but this statue that has cost us so much so much violence, so much hurt, so much bloodshed. 
it's gone and it's never going to be put back together the way it was. The melting down of the Lee statue will take weeks. It weighed nearly 10,000 pounds. Organizers say the next step will be choosing an artist who will craft the bronze ingots into a new art form to be displayed in Charlottesville. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Officials in Maine just updated their investigation into the mass shooting in Lewiston last night that left 18 people dead at a local bowling alley and a nearby bar. They've been searching all day for the suspect. WBUR's Anthony Brooks has been in Lewiston all day and was at the press conference, and he joins us now with the latest. Hi, Anthony. Hey, good evening, Lynn. So what did you learn at the press conference? Well, we heard from Maine Senator um, uh, Susan Collins, who talked about this as the worst mass shooting that Maine has ever experienced or could ever imagine. And um, she said that uh, the the search for the alleged shooter, that's 40-year-old Robert Card, is being conducted uh, by state, local, and federal officials, including some 80 FBI agents. In terms of an update on where we stand, uh, the the, uh, alleged shooter remains at large and is considered armed and dangerous. We also heard from state uh, rep, uh, sorry, Congressman Jared Golding, who represents uh, Maine's second uh, congressional district. Now, Golding's an interesting story because he's a moderate Democrat. And he talked today about false confidence and a failure of public policy when it comes to guns and said that he had never before thought it was necessary to ban assault-style weapons, which the shooter used uh, last night. And he said now he's going to call on Congress to ban assault weapons. So that represented a rather dramatic statement from a federal lawmaker here. And beyond that, we also heard from Steve Littleson, president and CEO of Central Maine Healthcare, who talked about the work that was done last night and how within 45 minutes, as the wounded and dying were brought into the hospital, six fully staffed operation rooms were up and running. And as we know, 18 people died, 13 injured. And of those injured, uh, uh, three remain in very critical condition, according to the doctor. Right. Uh, Getting back to the issue of guns, was there any new information as to how authorities believe uh, the suspect, the alleged gunman, may have gotten the gun or any of his past um, involvement in terms of mental health care and what happened this past summer? Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting uh, piece of this story because, in fact, there was a question about why uh, Maine's uh, red flag law wasn't triggered by the fact that um, Robert Card uh, was taken by police uh, for an evaluation uh, this past summer after uh, military officials became concerned that he was acting erratically in mid-July. Um, that was what a U.S. official told the Associated Press. So it does raise the question, if that was the case, and Maine has a red flag law on the books, how was it that uh, he had re- remained in possession of that gun? Because what that law is supposed to trigger is when there's that kind of a concern that someone is going to do harm to himself or herself or someone else, that they are separated from their firearm. That didn't happen in this case. Mm. And just briefly, Anthony, you've been up there all day. What has the scene been like in in Lewiston today? Well, it's a tragic uh, atmosphere. Uh, Lewiston is locked down uh, with a shelter-in-place order. And there's a real sense that this doesn't happen in Maine. Uh, This shouldn't happen here. And I heard it from a lot of people on the street, well, from the few people on the street that I bumped into. There was a woman uh, passing out food from a food truck 
um, to the first responders, and she said, this doesn't happen in Maine. And then she told me that she knew uh, two people who were shot last night and um, choked up and didn't want to talk to me much more about that. But that's what we're dealing with, with a real sense of this is such a dramatic change um, and, and such a dramatic event for both the city of Lewiston and the state of Maine uh, that it's really shattered, I think, a sense of collective security that has existed across this state for a while. Mm. A really painful day and, and night all around. Thank you, WBR's Anthony Brooks in Lewiston, Maine.